these two guys walk up to me, and the one guy says, hey, did you ever find that missing hunter? And I'm like, no, no, we never did. And he kind of smiled and smirked and says, yeah, you'll never find him. And that fast, he disappeared into the crowd before I could do anything. Go on. This is a podcast about the disappearance of Barry Zeldin in 2013 in the Pine Barrens. This is episode five, season one of Beyond the Garden Gate. I came from the mud, there's dirt on my hands, strong like a tree, there's roots where I stand, oh I've been running from the law, hope they won't shoot me down soon. So my co-host tonight on this episode is going to be G. So it's been a while since we did an episode about Barry. There's been a lot of stuff going on and really haven't had the opportunity to piece an episode together because there has been so much stuff going on. But we want to update everybody and we'll probably be rolling out two or three episodes really quickly here because there is some movement and there's some interesting things that are going on. So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about tonight, bud, is... um. I did eventually get a hold of John Hall, who was one of the hunters that we were, were told was Barry's best friend. So I'll detail that a little bit. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go into a, a interview with the actual search and rescue team that went out there, which I think people will find really interesting. And then we're going to also talk to a, a gentleman who wrote a fictional book that was inspired by Barry's story. And there's, he, he was also, I believe, out on the search too, right? Yeah, he was. He was yeah. part of the spring search. Yeah. So we'll go into that. But let me talk a little bit about John Hall real quick. I got in touch with John Hall, and that was last summer. Okay? It's almost been a year. It's been a really long time since we did an episode. But I was on the way to the beach with my family, and John was kind enough to call me back. Uh, this was after a few days of trying to get a hold of him. And we were told by Bill Swales and all those guys that John Hall was the guy who brought Barry into the club, was his best friend, uh, knew all there was to know about Barry. So when I got John on the phone, I found out a few things. I found out, number one, John Hall didn't know Barry before the hunt club. So I don't know if these guys are getting their stories twisted or they just didn't remember, you know, I mean, we're dealing with older guys here. I don't think anybody's trying to be evasive. You know what I mean? I just think that we're dealing with guys that are in their seventies and, you know, maybe they don't exactly remember every single detail correctly. Yeah. The whole thing sounds a little bit strange to me, but at the same time, like we've probably met people that you just like click with right off the bat 
Yeah. It seems like you guys go way back, but you may, maybe you only know them like a year or two. You yeah, know? maybe that's what they were thinking. They were probably thinking, look, these guys can get along pretty good. Now, John, John did like Barry. He was a good guy, but he did want to reiterate that, you know, he didn't know him before, you know, the Hunt Club, and he wasn't his best friend. But he did have some interesting things to say. And he was adamant when I talked to him, Jake, that Barry would not have gotten lost in Warren Grove Recreation Area. So there's another person who's telling us there's no way Barry would have got lost. And, you know, he also made a comment uh, about the way the car was found, which I think somebody else is going to talk a little bit about tonight. But he he said that Barry liked to, when when he did get, in a spot where he was going to go either bait or, or going to go hunt, he would like to hide, he would hide the car a little bit, you know, maybe push it back into the woods a little bit and where the, yeah. where the blazer was discovered, it was not back in the woods. It was basically right out on the side of the road. Yeah, so, it was, it was right off the shoulder. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it wasn't hidden at all. Yeah. And he found that very, very odd and he couldn't, he couldn't, you know, stress enough how he did not feel that Barry was po- it was pe- possible for Barry to get lost in those woods. Now, John Hall was the person that gave Barry that tree stand. And John Hall did say to me that, yes, you know, I, I did give him the tree stand. And I had John Hall, this is John Hall talking, he said, I did have problems the year before with a group that didn't want me hunting in there. So I asked him who that group was, and he wouldn't elaborate. He's, you know, he said, I, I, I don't know who it was. I just know it was a bunch of, you know, younger guys. But he did reiterate that he had had the problem the year before. And actually, I think in conversation when he was talking to Barry, Barry said, well, give it to me. You know, and that's when he gave it to him. And this was the first year that Barry was going to hunt in that area. So John Hall had been hunting over there before. Another thing that, that John Hall said to me was the reason he was so adamant that Barry didn't get out of the blazer that day and go hunting and like, you know, go to poach a deer was because when they, the club has a, a procedure that they employ where when they do start tracking an animal that they've shot, they have toilet paper on them. They've got it for a couple of reasons out in the woods, right? But this is, (laughs) this is one of the reasons that they have it. And what they do with the toilet paper is when they start to go, you know, off the path a little bit and into the trees, what they'll do is they'll wrap toilet paper around a branch so that if anybody needed to come find them, they would see that toilet paper and it kind of gives people a marker. Nobody reported seeing any toilet paper wrapped around any branches when, you know, during the search that I can find. And John said that that was a dead ringer when they got out there and, and they went to go look for him was the fact that there was none of this toilet paper there. So he was adamant about that, and I was impressed with him. I mean, like, of, of all the hunters that I've talked to, John really, you know, seemed to be the one that, that had the most on the ball. Um, you know, he, he really was adamant about all this good stuff. He didn't want to be recorded, but he didn't mind me passing along this information. So that's basically what happened when I got a hold of John Hall. So the toilet paper thing is interesting to me because – you know, nobody talked about that. Nobody reported it. Uh, John was there. John was one of the ones that found Barry's vehicle. There were four of them. It was Wilbur, John, Kevin Swales, Ed Russell. Those four were the ones that found the vehicle along with the park policeman. 
So to me, uh, you know, hearing that from him, that's, that's pretty much all I need to hear. I don't think Barry got lost. I continue to not think Barry got lost. And tonight what we got, we, we got a little interview that I did with Tommy Johnson from Burlington County's canine search and rescue. Great guy. And this is an interesting story too. When Barry went missing, a relative of Tom's was a friend of Barry's. So the family kind of reached out to Burlington County canine search and rescue right away because they knew those guys. And we'll talk a little bit in the next episode uh, about something that the police said to me, um, you know, that I thought was a little bit odd. But it, this is basically our, our interview with Tommy Johnson. Hello. Hey, Tom. Hey. So, Tom, thanks uh, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, can you take uh, some time to introduce yourself and your organization? Sure. My name is Tom Johnson. I am the chief of the Burlington County Canine Search and Rescue. Uh, we're a search and rescue organization composed of 100% volunteers. We operate 100% off a of donation, uh, and that started back in 2009. We incorporated in 2010. Okay. And uh, we serve uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Maryland for emergency response. Yeah. Now I got your website here. It's B U R L C O K 9 S A R dot org. So it's Burlco K 9 SAR dot org in case anybody wants to take a look at it. I looked at it today. You know, something that I looked, looked at it right away and I, I didn't even realize is you guys, you know, you've got canines, but you've also got like amphibious vehicles, you've got boats. Yeah, um, yeah. You got like a whole fleet of stuff you employ. You even have an ambulance that you take with you, right? We do. We do. We have yeah. uh, we have an ambulance that we converted over to our uh, MCU or our mobile command unit. So we, when we uh, get dispatched to a search, that's where uh, everything comes out of. That's where all the maps are made. That's where all the tasks are assigned. That's where all the briefings are being done. Um Radios then, charged, equipment's charged. There. Radios charged, <laughs> all radio communication, uh, all the tracking uh, of the people in the field. Everything goes on uh, within within that mobile command unit. Yeah, and we wanted to talk to you because you actually took place and you know you actually were were participating in the search for Barry. So you were originally contacted by the family to join the search. Can you explain how the family knew to contact you? It was it was really weird. My I heard about this missing guy uh, going on, and I'm like, oh, I wonder if we'll be called. And and sure enough, we weren't. And next thing you know, my phone's ringing, and it's my father-in-law, and he's like, uh, listen, I, I want to talk to you. My my friend's missing, oh, and I'm wow. like, your friend? He's like, yeah, my friend Barry. Well, long story short. They're friends, and he's, he's his neighbor. Wow. Yeah, they're and all, like, they're all uh, in that same he, development, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, you know what? I was like, let's go. <laughs> That's awesome. So so when you originally spoke with them, and I, I, it's no secret, like Deb's been on the show talking about how frustrated they they were with the search. Did, were, were they frustrated with the pace of the search? Very frustrated. And, you know, the, the, the whole process is, is very frustrating, it's, it's one of the things that I, when we get new members, one of the first things I tell them is it's a big game of hurry up and wait. You hurry up to get there and then you wait because you have to wait for, you know, 
different things to take place. You had to wait for maps and, and all this stuff to be drawn up and your, your DSA or your designated search area to be assigned and safety briefs and this, that, and the other. But, you know, once the ball gets rolling, it gets rolling pretty quick and stays going. But in, in the beginning, it, it is slow pace, but it's, it is very frustrating when, when you know you're there to do a job, you have a job to do, and things are just holding you back. Yeah, yeah. So who was coordinating the search when you got out there? When we got out there, there was nobody there. Okay. So you, you originally went out. We there? went out on our own accord. Okay. And this was after yeah, this was after the blazer was recovered, all that good stuff? Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. Yeah, so I was able to get some information, uh, not a lot. So basically what I did was I did my own investigation, and we, we just went from there. Okay. How many members did you have out there while you were searching? I would have to say probably in the area of 12 or 15. Okay. And how many dogs? Well, we went out we went out several times, and I, uh, I would say an average of probably five dogs. Okay. Okay. And what was the terrain like when you were out there? Because here's, we get this a lot from the guys, the old timers who are, you know, always tramping around in that area cannot ask, you know, emphasizing enough how terrible it is out there. It is. It's, 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 um, like you're thinking of the pine barrens. Oh, it's flat. It's, right. it's, you know, just pine trees. It's a lot more than that. You have little hills, you have swamp area. Tons and tons of briars, you know, and if you're not dressed right or equipped right, you're getting cut up, you're getting stuck, you're getting, you know, all caught up in these briars, and they're relentless. Right, sure. Did that? Did you feel like any of that kind of held you up at all, though? I mean, were you able uh, to... We're kind of used to situations like that okay. uh, in, in a lot of the areas that we search. So, you know, it's... It's a little bit of give and take, but, you know, we, we, we try to push through it and, uh, you know, just make our way through and, and keep the the task at hand ahead of us. You know, you know, like I said, we're there to do a job and we want to get it done. Gotcha. So did anybody ever take you actually to where the, the blazer was found and where Barry's stand was that he was supposed to be going in the bait? No, nobody ever took us there. Okay. Um, I found out through my own investigation where it was, how it was parked. I found out, you know, what was in it, the direction it was facing, and nothing really was adding up to, you know, what I, what other things I found out in my investigation about how he would leave things, how he would do things, and nothing was adding up to, you know, Barry put this vehicle here. Huh, that's interesting. So can you can you elaborate a little bit more on that? What do you, what do you mean? So. I was told that when he would park his car, he would park it a certain way. He didn't want people to know he was there. So it would be kind of hidden. Um, and this was right out in the open. Yeah, it was. I have a picture of it. (laughs) Yep. He took his dog with him everywhere. If he was baiting his stand, the dog was there. The dog was in the vehicle, like totally not him. While it left in there, like it's just nothing added up to where he drove out there, he parked it, and he went into the woods to either hunt or bait a stand or, you know, scout the area. Yeah. It's just nothing was, was adding up. Well, how about the area itself, too? Um, 
you know, one thing that when I go out there and I go out there a lot, um, probably way too much, but one of the things that really grabs me about the area, Warren Grove itself, first of all, you know, I, I know it is really dense and, you know, you've got a lot of briars and, and bushes and stuff like that, but his stand was literally about 75 yards from where the truck was. Correct. And it was right off of a clearly marked trail. Right. Now, originally, when I was talking to the police a couple of weeks ago, they told me that they had to elbow crawl to get through to this tree. And when I told Deb that, um, she laughed out loud <laughs> and said that that absolutely was not the case. But no. something that strikes me about Warren Grove um, when I go out there is that there are a lot of trails, roads, fire cuts, game Tons. trails. Yes. Yeah, and here's the other thing about that area, too. It's actually only 617 acres. Right. And to put that in perspective, I think for people, like we've all taken trips up to Manhattan and we've gone to Central Park, right? Central Park is 832 acres. Right. Warren Grove is only 617. Correct. <laughs> so it's about 70% the size of Central Park. Right, right. It's not an overwhelmingly large area. It's not. It's not. Um, and, you know, like you said, there's tons of trails and, and roads that go through there. Uh, I don't think I've ever been out there and not seen somebody in a four-wheel drive vehicle, somebody on, a, on an ATV or a dirt bike or something like that. There's always people everywhere. Yeah. And a lot of natural um, landmarks too. You have the tower yes. itself. The tower, yeah. You've got uh, Phoenix Pineland Sand Company, which is huge, which is yes. directly to the south. You can't walk past that. You would drown. It's one of those big blue pools that's in the middle of yeah. the Pine Barrens. You've got the Oswego River to the south too as well. And yep. actually the land from probably about maybe 200 yards south of where Barry's truck was found, starts to get swampy until it comes down into that that river. So, you know, and there's a lot of little ponds strewn out throughout the whole place. Um, and even to the north, up near 72, which is only a mile's walk north, there's an old airfield, which is still yes. used for bombing runs. I think it's called Crowley Field or Crawley Coil Field. field. Coil Field, that's it. Coil Field <clears throat> yeah, is right there. New Jersey, um, the New Jersey... Uh, Forest Fire Service operates at. Okay, okay. So there's a lot of areas in there that would be natural landmark for somebody who was lost to say, oh, you know, maybe I, I just hang out here or I, I just follow this road and I'll, I'll be back out to civilization. Would you agree? Yeah. No, absolutely. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it just, what I run into a lot with people when I talk to them about with this story is that, you know, we get stuck on, look, his body's just in there and it's in an area that's inaccessible. Nobody managed to, you know, fall across it. At this point, it's just a skull. And, you know, when a good fire comes through there, we'll find them. I just can't figure out in my head how he could have gotten turned around so bad that he would have had some kind of medical emergency and not been able to stumble out there a road or a trail. Yeah, there's, there's so many that are in and around that area. Um, and, and you're not only talking like dirt trails there's paved trails there's roads like actual roads not too far from there 
you know, when you're out there, you hear the cars going by. You know, another thing, too, is you got to imagine, like, this guy's going out there to, you know, bait a stand or whatever he's going to do. He's going to be carrying maybe 50 pounds of corn or, or more, some of these guys. They're not going to be getting on their hands and knees crawling and dragging a bag of corn to put it in their stand. Yeah. And They're going to have a clear-cut way to their stand so they can dump their bait and get out. Yeah, and there was no bait at his stand. Um, and all the bait that he had with him was still in the vehicle. Still in the truck. Yeah. So if he did go out to bait the stand, he, he kind of failed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He yeah. he literally got out of the truck, walked to the stand, and forgot to bring the bait, which was the original reason along with his dog. Yeah, we, we've gone yeah, over that. Yeah, it makes that. no sense. Now, we've gone over that a million times. Um, so your dogs, here's the other thing we run into a lot, too. People will tell us, that story, they'll say, well, look, you know, he was in there and, you know, you guys, the searchers just didn't come across him. Now we're talking 617 acres. You know your dogs better than I do. I've had Alex Kachenko on the show who talked about his dog, Vegas. He's another canine search guy, you know, from Jersey who we talked about it. And I said to him, you know, can you see any way where Barry would have been in there God forbid, had some kind of a medical emergency, and now he's decaying, and these dogs wouldn't have picked up on a scent. You know your dogs better than I do. Do you see any way they wouldn't have at least picked up some type of a scent? No, not at all. And when they, you, they, they would have, they would have alerted. You know, it's not that big of an area. Yeah. Now, how do you train? Like your volunteers, they actually all have a dog and then they take the time to train this dog, right? Correct. And they train it on decaying flesh. They train it on bone. They train it on all all kinds of different things, right? Correct. Okay. So all your dogs were through that process that you were using, right? Uh, in the beginning, we had, because it was, it was um, early in the game, uh, we had air scent dogs out there. So air scent dogs are going to pick up on any human scent, period. Okay. So we started with that because, you know, there was, there was a chance he was out there and still alive. So we, we did that, and we used air scent dogs, and they were just walking around, uh, no indications whatsoever. Okay. And did you also use cadaver dogs at some point? We did. We did. We used cadaver dogs later on. We were out there several times, and that wasn't the only area that we searched. We started in that area because that's where the truck was found. We wanted to kind of rule that out. Um, But I also found out he had permission to hunt on other people's property that was close by. Right. So we went into that area as well. When you guys were there, how did you get that information? How is that information relayed to you? Hey, th- you know, we also had a stand over here. Who was the person that was relaying that information to you? Or the, the group that was relaying that information? Was it the hunters themselves? Mm, you know what? I really don't recall off the top of my head. Um, I remember speaking with his wife. It could have, you know what? His son. Okay. So he probably his spoke son. to the hunters, I would think. Right. It was probably, yeah, yeah, I think it was it was his son and there was another guy where he kept his truck. And that gentleman was, was very okay. helpful. Yeah, Will Pat. Um mm-hmm. so we you know, I just put was kind of mixing information that we were getting. Gotcha. And they gave you just generalized areas. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, landowners' names, uh, you know, and I would go and talk to them and just get, you know, permission, tell them who I was, what we were doing, permission to, uh, you know, search the area. And, and everybody was like, absolutely, go right ahead. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine everybody would be very willing to cooperate at that point. Um, yeah. The reason I asked you that question is because I'm sure you probably know this, but literally they search, you know, he goes missing, uh, finally everybody's alerted to this on the 11th, which was a Friday. I can't get any information out of the police as to whether any searching was done on the night of the 11th. Um, I have no idea, but literally at nine o'clock in the morning on Saturday, the 12th is when they found the blazer and the group that found the blazer was his hunt club buddies who were permitted to search by themselves you know, just they went out by themselves and just searched. They weren't supervised. They weren't over, you know, nobody in law enforcement was with them. And literally the search begins, you know, an hour before that. And an hour later, they're like, hey, here's his his blazer. It, it was just interesting to me the way they were allowed to participate in the search. I Have you ever seen another search where perhaps somebody who could have been connected in some way, you know, to the person that you're searching for was just allowed unsupervised to join the search. I mean, is that something that you've ever seen? Not, 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 it's not common. Okay. Um, it, it does happen. Every situation is different. I mean, look, I, I've seen missing people cases where the police are asking for public assistance in locating somebody. I'll call up and say, hey, you know, I've been doing this for 11, 12 years. I'd be willing to come out and help. No, 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 no. We're good. We're good. We're good. But you want every Tom, Dick, and Harry out here just walking around searching. Uh, that, that's, that, that's okay. That's fine. I'm like, how? I, I, I don't know. You don't know it's, how they delineate between the two of them, right? No, no. And, and you know, we have every year we have crime scene preservation training that is done. It's for the last several years has been from the uh, a, a trooper from the New Jersey State Police. If it's not, it's another police department that's that's doing it. And it's all basically the same, but. You know, we have the training, you know, to pre- preserve that crime scene if there's a crime scene. Right. And then you have these other people that have absolutely no clue going through, trampling evidence, destroying evidence, uh, you know, and just contributing to negativity, you know, the search or the investigation. And they're allowed to do it. And they, they stop us. So. I don't know how it's allowed. I don't know why, you know, I always tell everybody when your house is on fire, you call the fire department. When you're having a medical emergency, you call the squad. When somebody's robbing your house, you call the police. Well, when somebody's missing, why don't they call search and rescue? It's the last one that they call if they call. And it never, ever made sense to me. No, it doesn't really make sense to me either. So it really, each, each search is different. 
And it, each search is different. Yeah. Is it usually though law enforcement leading it? Like do you, when you guys get called in on something, is it law enforcement calling you or is it the family? Most of the time it's law enforcement or law enforcement. If it's, if it's local law enforcement, they call the fire company and then they call us or the police department will call us to go out and then we'll you know, either lead or assist with leading uh, the search. Okay. Which in, in, I mean, which really helps because a lot of times what they'll do is they'll say, Hey, look, this is search and rescue. This is what you guys do. Just tell us what you need. Tell us what you want to do and we'll back you. Uh, when you have that type of cooperation, it's phenomenal and it always leads to something positive. Yeah. Makes sense. Let me ask you this. It, one of the things, once again, going back to the hunters, they all seem like really good guys. I've talked to most of them. I don't, I don't think, you know, they were involved with anything. I just thought it was kind of odd that they were allowed to join in this search and just go off without maybe just one representative with them, you know, just to see where they went and what they did and maybe just observe them. Right. It was just odd. Now talking to you, I think it's a little bit less odd. I think one of the problems with law enforcement is, you know, and especially here in this state, most of the search and rescue stuff is like you said, volunteer. It's, it's guys like you giving your time, giving your, um, good bill money, you know, all that kind of stuff to, to kind of put this all together. And we're really, we're really short on resources in this state. Yeah. But I think there's another aspect to that too. And, you know, I think maybe up North there's a little bit more, resources available if something happens up north than if something happens down in South Jersey has, I mean, that's the feeling I'm getting. Do you get that feeling too, that maybe when it's up north, you know, they pull out all the stops and maybe down south, it's sort of kind of like you're drawing them away from Trenton and they sort of kind of. Sometimes, okay. sometimes it, it feels like that. Cause you guys are no. kind of like right in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we're considered South Jersey, but you know, we're 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 kind of kind of middle. Um, but you know, we do searches everywhere, and I'll tell you that you know, when you go west, like west of the Mississippi, a lot of search and rescue comes under the sheriff's department, so they have tons of resources. More east you go, it's less and less and less and less and less. Everything that we've got, we've either gotten donated or purchased ourselves, nobody is like, hey, you know, we got this. You, know, you, you can yeah. use this. <laughs> you know, no sheriff's department, no police department was ever, you know, hey, you know, utilize this, utilize that. So, you know, with, with, with the years of doing it, the experience that we've got doing it, we realize, you know, you know what, we need to get this or we need to get that. And everything that we've had acquired through the years has been used on searches with success. Right. And, and, you know, and we're still not there. You know, there's, there's other things that I would really like to see our department get, but you know, when you're not funded, you're pinching pennies, literally. So, <laughs> as, so as, it's tough. As far as getting funded in the state, everybody's in the same boat. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. I mean, in a way that makes sense. Because of the next question I'm going to ask you, can you recall anybody who has gone out, you know, hunting, hiking, whatever, and in this state, and, you know, a, a search has been conducted for him and no remains have been found? 
I have Besides, you know, other one, than Barry's case? I have three cases that I've never been able to find the person. Uh Barry's one. Uh there's another gentleman that his case was really, really unique. He was a survivalist with dementia. And it was it was bad. It's like an um, oxymoron right there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, this guy, you know, not, not, not to go off subject, but you know, his, his brother would drop him off in Northern New Jersey with nothing but their clothes on his back. And he would call two months, three months later and say, Hey, I'm up in someplace in New York. Come pick me up. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's what we were up against on his case. And, um, you know, we, uh, we were real close at one point, and the clues that I was getting uh, at the time, the, the people that were leading the search were like, no, no, it's irrelevant, no, no. And then I, I was able to talk to the, the family, and actually the grandson was like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, that's what my grandfather would do. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wonderful. So here I was all hot on this guy's heels, and everybody was like, nah, it's irrelevant, it's irrelevant. And it wasn't the whole time. Oh, wow. But we never were able to find that guy. Yeah, that's a pretty extreme case. Pretty pretty yeah. easy to figure out what happened with him, too. You know? He I mean, got... we know, he's, he's walking around Utah exactly. somewhere. I mean, <laughs> exactly. He's either doing that or, he, you know, he got, he got, uh, he fell down in the middle of a canyon somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But Barry's case is pretty unique. How about the third one? You said the third guy um, was actually real close to where we're located. Uh, he um, he lived, I can't remember where he lived, but he was headed through this area to go visit family. Uh, stopped, got a hotel room, um, went like a door or two doors down to grab a sandwich from a pizzeria, drove back to the hotel room, and disappeared. Gone. Vanished. Yeah. Yeah. Picked up along the side of the road, probably. You know, I have no idea. He yeah. was, he, um, he was, you know, on his way to visit family, was going to stay, stop for the night to rest up, uh, and then, you know, went, went to, get something to eat, have them on video surveillance, walking into the restaurant, picking up a sandwich, walking out, going to the hotel room, parking in front, and just gone. His truck was there. His clothes were there. Everything was there. Wow. Gone. Just like, been there. Jeez. That's interesting. Yeah, I can tell by, I can tell by your tone. You still, this Barry thing still really bothers you. It does. Um, and I'll give you a little backstory on on me. Years ago, in two thousand, beginning two thousand nine, my uncle went missing, and I saw how my family was treated, and it was just like, oh, oh well, it's just another missing person. Nobody cared. Nobody searched. Nobody looked. Nobody was out there. So I said, you know what? I'm I'm going to find them, and I went to his front door. And I was like, you know, if I was him, what would I do? I knew his health issues. I knew what he could and couldn't do. So I started walking and I'm like, well, he loved the pine. So he would have went down here and he 
couldn't go here because of this, or he couldn't go there because of that. And I would walk and walk and walk and walk and walk. And I finally stopped. And I remember on my left this huge tree. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know where he's at. And I'm like, you know, I I, got to stop. And I turned around and I went home. 32 days later, we got a phone call. We found your uncle. Oh, well, he's deceased. Okay. Where was he? So I go out there. They lead me the exact way that I walked to the exact tree that I stopped at. And he was on the other side of it. Oh, wow. And I said, you know what? The Lord works in mysterious ways. And he just did not want me to see him in the condition that he was in. Probably not. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? If I did that for him, I could probably do it for somebody else. And then within a week, my wife and I get this email from this guy who saw a picture of our shepherd and was like, that's an absolutely beautiful shepherd. Did you ever try search and rescue with him? And that was it. It's been nonstop ever since. That's amazing. So that's what got you into it. Great That's story. what got me into it. Yeah. Now, before I forget about this, because you and I talked about this the other day when we were talking about Barry, and I was relating some of the stories that I get when I go go around. Um, you guys did a little, um, a little booth at the Chatsworth Cranberry, um, yes, festival, and had something strange happen to you. Can you relate we that did. story? We did. Um, That is an absolutely huge event. You're talking in a town that only has 14,000 residents that on them two days each day, you're looking at around 100,000 people each coming to a square mile of this town for the Cranberry Fest. And we had a booth there and we were trying to raise funds, selling shirts and accepting donations and, you know, just telling people, you know, who, who we are, what we do. And these two guys walk up to me and the one guy says, Hey, did you ever find that missing hunter? And I'm like, no, no, we never did. And he kind of smiled and smirked and yeah, you'll never find him. And that fast, he disappeared into the crowd before I could do anything. <laughs> Go on. Yeah. And I'm like, that was really weird. (laughs) (laughs) Happens to me all the time. (laughs) I kind of get the same kind of stories. So, you know, just just to kind of bring it back around, um, back to Barry and specifically about Barry's Barry's case. Do you kind of have a working theory that you want to hold on to or do you want to relate it? Do you think he was ever really there? I don't think so. I don't I don't think he was there. You know, other things throughout my investigation just told me otherwise. But I wanted to rule the area out because his car was there. I don't want to go too much into that right now. But um, some things leading up to that just wasn't Barry. It just didn't make sense. Um, You know, different things that happened. It's just like, no, he would never do that. There's a lot of that. There's also the fact that you guys never found anything when you were looking for them and the, yeah. the cadaver dogs never found anything. And, yep. you know, a lot of things that people will, will relate about it is, well, you know, we had some health issues. Now, 
you know, he was supposedly having some circulation problems and had had some mini strokes, right? It's not right. really clear whether that really happened or not. But as somebody who has some circulation problems of my own and has had some issues like that, usually those problems don't crop up when you're moving. No, they don't. <laughs> usually they don't. what happens is those problems crop up when you are stationary. And yeah. that's when you start to get your strokes and your, your circulation issues. So that, yeah. for me, that's another reason why I just, you know, if he was out there and he was moving around, I just don't see him having that issue. Now, if he was straining to get away from something, maybe, but it, it's a combination of all that stuff. It's, it's the fact that, you know, no one could underestimate how much he loved that dog. I get Barry yeah, loves the dog right. stories all the time. The dog's still alive, by the way. It's still really? alive. Yep. Taffy's wow. still alive. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I know I travel everywhere with my dog. I'm the same way. You know, if I go to leave, even if I'm just going to the store and it's the fall or the winter time, I got to take him with me. He wants to get right. in the car. Sure. And if somebody's that it, that it, you know, solid with that dog, the last place they're going to leave him is in a car in the woods because there's nothing dogs love more than picking through the woods. So yep. it's a lot so of that. Windows down, like. Right. Keys yeah. in the car. Keys, not really wallet. wallet in the car not really barry's gig you know uh, it's, he's not really the most trusting individual either so just leave no. his wallet in there and his keys in there i mean to me the car just seems like it was staged that's my personal opinion it's, i i would agree i'd, I'd agree 100 percent. yeah and perhaps it maybe happened in another spot so yeah yeah it's, and, that's kind yeah, of just kind um, of where my head is at on it you know when 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 you have hunters or hunting clubs and you know it's it's all like a big family in, in most of these hunting clubs around here and then within that you have you know them few guys that are like brothers and share everything um right so those you know oh well I hunt here, here, and here, you know, and, and they just share stories and, and gossip and whatnot, but they'll know that people have multiple spots and Barry had multiple spots. And that one spot was the one spot that everybody knew about. No matter who you talk to, everybody knew he hunted that one spot, but nobody knew about the other spot. That's, is, that's new information. That's good stuff. I haven't heard that from anybody else, but that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So if people are listening and they want to support you guys and help you out, how can they support you guys? Two of the biggest ways uh, is Venmo. One of, them, one of them is Venmo. So that'd be www.venmo.com slash B-C-K-9-S-A-R. Okay. And PayPal. So it'd be pay.me slash b c K9SAR. Excellent. And then you guys also have like an Amazon Smile thing too. So if anybody's out there and you you have Amazon Prime like yeah, I you do. Can Amazon that smile. Yeah, cuz I hate shopping, you know, and I get it in two days anyway. You can you can go to Amazon Smile so you like donate your change or whatever and you can right, actually right. donate it to these guys too. And actually and that have- that's on your website. So if people yeah. go and they they click down on your click down menu. They can check that out. It's Amazon Smile. And you would be surprised how much that little bit helps. Yes, it does. And you'll never I miss mean, the change. It, it, it really helps. For the first several years, we had nothing. And everything came out of my pocket. 
insurance, vehicles, maintenance, fuel, gear. So yeah, it's kind of well, like, every little bit helps. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like doing a podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Same thing happens here, bud. I really appreciate you being on tonight, man. I, you know, at some uh, point, my pleasure. Yeah, at some point, you and I got to maybe get out there and and do something remote, just to you know, maybe you can point out some of the places you guys. Uh, I'd be to. happy to. Yeah, thanks, Tom. You're very welcome. Yo, Tom, and again, we really appreciate that. And uh, next up, we got Dave Hart. Now, Dave's the author of a fiction novel that's based on Barry's case called "Search for the Missing Hunter." It's just one book in a larger series that follows the adventures of characters that, in my opinion, feel like a familiar mix between the Hardy Boys and the Goonies. He's a writer, researcher, filmmaker, and an award-winning songwriter. He's board trustee for the Trent Historical Society, UN Township Historic Preservation Society, CEO of John Hart Patriot LLC, and uh, he's also an alumni from Ryder University. He's written all the pretty pieces and tipping point, as well as co-authored with his writing partner John Kalu. Adventures Along the Jersey Shore, Spirits of Cedar Bridge, Trenton the Novel, Riddle in the Sand, The Lost Mission of Captain Carranza, Secret of the Painted Rock, Mystery of the Jersey Devil, and Treasures of Tucker Island. Victoria Lasande from the Sandpaper and Beachcomber said the heart's content reads like good television. And Heather Farah from the Atlantic City Press has described his work as Dan Brown meets Weird New Jersey. Hey Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, Garrett. It's a pleasure to uh, be on the show. I've been following you guys along, uh, and uh, I'm really interested, as I'm sure many of your uh, audience, in the in this case involving the Warren Grove Hunter, the missing Warren Grove Hunter, who's missing still, going on, what, seven, eight years. Yeah, I was actually in uh, Web Sleuths, and I was just looking up evidence for the case and, you know, basically looking through the forums. And there had been a book mentioned here and there, and I was like, what is this book? Let me let me track this down. And I had no luck for about probably half a year now. And uh, Mike, our host, he finally found it and forwarded it to me, and we both got on it right away. You've read it? I'm currently reading it. Okay, good, good. And I hear there, um, there might be a, a situation where uh, uh, Debbie uh, Zeldin might be reading it too, which, which would be nice to hear that uh, she did and she approves of it. Let, let me give you some of the, the background uh, on how I came to write that book. Okay. Uh, as, as you know, I've, uh, I'm a writer, a researcher, and a filmmaker. I, up together with a friend and co-author, I've been writing books uh, about the myths, the legends, the history, the events of um, New Jersey for almost 20 years. The, the usual stories um, based in the Pinelands and uh, the Jersey Shore, stuff about the Jersey Devil, uh, Cedar Bridge Tavern, the uh, Painted Rock, the Enigma of the Painted Rock, and, and, and other things. They were stories that John and I grew up listening to uh, and um, stories that we figured um, others would be interested in. So we treated them in a kind of an entertaining way. We, we put in the history, we put in all the facts that we could learn about these places, these stories, these events, and we created three protagonists, three teenagers who experienced them in a set of adventures. Those, um, originally there were six novellas 
and they eventually all got grouped together by Plexus uh, out of Medford, New Jersey, and put into a single companion volume in 2015 called Adventures Along the Jersey Shore. And in addition to the six, we added another one just for that volume, which was Storm Warnings. It's, it's setting in this in that particular case was uh, during Superstorm Sandy. So with that in mind, um, we have a pretty large following, a loyal and large following down in um, in South Jersey. In fact, every year for the last 15 years, we have been um, participants in the Lines in the Pines event that takes place. It's an arts and crafts event that takes place down in South Jersey. It originally started in a small little restaurant called Sweetwater Casino about 15 years ago before that burned down and it got so large over the years that it eventually made its way to um, the Stockton University and we're real happy about that. Unfortunately, it's been on hiatus for the last uh, year and a half, but uh, we're hoping that uh, next spring that um, the Lines on the Pines will uh, continue and, and, and have a new exhibition. We'll be there signing for the PPA, the Pinelands Preservation Alliance. We, we, they sell our books, we sign them, and all the proceeds are given to that, that fine organization. So that, that brings us to the, the search of the missing hunter. The, the, the hunter disappeared in October of 2013. And in the spring of that year, March of 2014, my uh, co-author, John Clue, and myself, we attended a um, the Lines in the Pines, and that was the buzz at the Lines in the Pines. Several people pitched that story to us about this missing hunter. And um, we, we were lucky enough to, at the same time, later that night, have um, sit at the same dinner table with the co-founder of the um, search and rescue squad that went out on that, uh, that initial search. Oh, really? Um, so, who, do you remember who that was by any chance? Yeah, that's the Burlington County uh, Search and Rescue. It's the Johansons who um, who are the co-owners of that group. At least they were. I, I imagine they still are, all, still are. They're terrific people. And they pretty much, whatever we didn't know, they pretty much filled in the blanks. And um, before the evening was out, um, we were offered an opportunity uh, to go out with the search and rescue team, which was um, preparing to go out for an updated search that May. So we went. The book itself then becomes an inspiration on two events, not just one. It's inspired by the um, actual disappearance of um, the hunter in Warren Grove, Barry Zeldin, and also the follow-up search with the search and rescue squad that occurred in may of 2014 in which um, my co-author john clue and myself were in attendance and you get in the book you get a sense of both those things now now full disclosure disclosure uh, garrett we were not able to read the police reports and um back in those days those were the kinds of things that you know the public just wasn't able to see but we did get an awful lot of first-hand material from the search and rescue squad other participants um in the initial search for him and um of course all the reports all the all the news and published accounts that were occurring at the time which were not a lot but it was enough to really whet the appetite and from that 
I went ahead and cobbled the, the book together uh, on my own because um, my uh, my co-writer, John Clue, is, is now living the, the good life down in, in Florida, still writing. We still stay in contact, but uh, he's on a, a separate track, a different track for, for himself. So I continued the series, and The Search for the Missing Hunter is a continuation of that Adventures Along the Jersey Shore series where our three protagonists actually get involved in that follow-up search looking for the the missing hunter. The approach, um, when you read the book, the approach is kind of interesting. We listened and tried to think of all the possible explanations of what happened to, to this guy. It's still a mystery, as you know. Um, and we love the ones that start with, you know, he was he was abducted by the Jersey Devil. Um, there are vortexes, you know, you weird read weird New Jersey and you get all sorts of ideas about yeah. <laughs> what happened to him. The um, you know he he even got uh, abducted by uh, UFOs, which you know there's a a portal or gateway there all those things um and we and i added a few in in the book itself we know that every day people go into those woods and don't come out for various reasons uh and um we i myself (laughs) have experienced that firsthand you know an overnight experience in the in the new jersey pines uh is really uh a rude awakening. <laughs> oh man, would you like to share that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are all sorts of things back there that are problematic. Um, uh, and I'm not just talking about the alleged pine walkers. Most of the most of the pioneers that we've met are very nice, very friendly people. Mm-hmm. But I know that there were pockets of, of people and stories that you hear that are really odd. And um, one place in particular is this sim place, which is referenced in the book, where uh, some of the, the follow-up search takes place. It was once a um, sand and gravel um, complex, uh, mining complex, which fostered a whole village back there. It's now it's now in ruins. It's now defunct, but. Um, we, I, I recreated that uh, that village as part of the setting for this book, and the characters um, who play the uh, antagonists mostly in in the follow up search. So, what happened to him? That becomes the question. And I've been listening to the um, uh, the, the people that you've had on, and they're they're very fascinating. Everyone has their own viewpoint, their own spin. Some of them are. Um, you know, first-hand accounts. Some of them are just theorizing. They're mostly you hear from the professionals, and you think, "Yeah, that's that's really something." What do we know? We know uh, on the surface the story is about an experienced hunter, although he's aged. He's a senior citizen, somewhere. If you read the reports, between what seventy-two and seventy-six years old. Yep. He's got. He's had some physical illnesses, some physical maladies. Um, I, I think strokes have been mentioned, minor strokes have been mentioned, and I know he had diabetes, and, and that becomes a plot point in in my particular book, that he forgets his, his um, medicine that day. But what, what do we know that has really caught the attention is that he seems to have disappeared in thin air, just boom, puff, gone. And that really fires the imagination. So 
you think about it, he, he was missing from his home for almost five days, right? From Monday, the 7th of October till at least Friday or Saturday of that week when they discovered his pickup truck. Correct. I, I believe it was a Saturday. Okay. And the pickup truck, um, the old Blazer, uh, was it really found in a unique way. First of all, it was what, 75 yards, I think someone said, from the actual deer stand that he was allegedly going to um, bait his uh, bait the stand. That's interesting that it would be 70, parked 75 yards from it instead of right near it or under it or next to it. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you realize is that um, it was unlocked, um, that his keys were in the ignition, that his cell phone was in the car, in the blazer, that his um, wallet was in the blazer, and that his, his dog, that his beloved Taffy, was in, in, the, in the blazer. Correct. The windows had been rolled down just a, just a crack or so on both sides to let some air, and, and, and eventually that's what apparently uh, enabled the dog to survive those few days, right? The rainwater that trickled in and the, um, and the bait that, that the dog ate. But when the police got there and, and saw the vehicle, they didn't process it as a crime scene because they didn't view it as a, a crime scene. There were no signs of struggle, no blood, no broken windows, um, nothing that would lead them to think that, uh, that this guy was taken out against his will. Um, also, and one of your one of your guests mentioned this that it wasn't processed because of the rain they would have been it would have been dis- difficult to find fingerprints on the exterior of the blazer uh because it had rained several times during that week and apparently that would have washed out any footprints and washed out any other tire tracks that might have been around so no one was thinking no one was thinking at this point that there was foul foul play involved and then so so what happened so if he didn't go to bait his deer stand which he apparently didn't because the bait was still in the truck correct what did he do go out and take a piss <laughs> really think about it what what would he have gotten out of the truck for and left all his paraphernalia and, and valuables there if yeah. he wasn't going to bait the, the deer stand or take a piss and i i really couldn't think of anything else so um in the story and I don't want to give too much away, there's there's two incidences that we tie together, one involving ATVs, which have become a real nightmare back there, and the other one involving the fact that he did not have his uh, medication with him. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's gone into a um, sugar shock. I uh, definitely have. I have. I have. They're, they're catatonic. They really don't know what's going on. So I, I've kind of crafted that into the story and you couple that with so many places to hide so many holes and um sand pits and um uh, covered wells and all sorts of additional things that um could be found anywhere in the pines and this guy really could disappear in any one of those things and um in addition to that i think we we bring in some elements that um uh, are purely uh, um, imaginary, imaginary, and they try to show the humanity of the family that's going through this ordeal uh, over the course of time. 
like I said, I'm I'm currently reading it, but I did kind of skip around and I I saw parts where you did that and I mean you do a very good job of capturing the humanity aspect of the of the case and we you know we try to be very respectful and you know think about loved ones and family when we're doing this podcast and I think you did a very good job of that in writing and uh again so you use fact and you use theories and you blend together you find this uh fiction based on the case like even uh the hunter isn't Barry Selden it's uh it's Grady Zellman and I think you did awesome as far as keeping everything very respectful, but also very true to the case. Yeah, the chronology follows almost exact as I knew it at the time. And the, the history, again, we didn't have the police report, so we couldn't mm-hmm. look at the particulars that the investigators actually looked at. But we had a pretty good sense of it from the people the people that I interviewed, particularly from the, the uh, search and rescue squad, and the fact that I went out with them the second time. I saw what they did. Yeah, that's very interesting. I kind of want to talk about that. It's, it's. We didn't mention this to you before we got you on, but we just actually, uh, we have an interview that we're probably going to be posting along with yours in the same show, where Mike's interviewing Mr. Hansen. So I, that's very interesting to know that you were involved in the second search. So firsthand being out there, what did you think of the actual terrain? <laughs> the, the terrain was hideous. It, it was full of briars. It, there was lots of bogs. I mean, we were on in cranberry bogs mostly, thick, thick, thick. Um, I, I don't know. A lot of the the uh, thicket was was so thick that the the dogs couldn't get through, couldn't penetrate. Let alone um, us. You got to remember, we were in, there in May, so in mm-hmm. springtime it, it was growing um, much more than it would have been in October. And there were ticks out, and it was it was warm and heated. It, it was it was tough. We um, we divided the teams. the the uh, The head of the search and rescue divided us into two teams: the A team and the B team. And there was a base camp established actually um, along Stevenson Road. And that morning, they gave us each a set of um, maps, two maps uh, downloaded that very morning from Google Earth and indicated um, the quadrants, the areas that we would be walking and what we'd be looking for. Now, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but there are a couple of different types of um, rescue dogs. Um, mm-hmm. There are there are something called um, uh, air scent, you know, track and trail dogs, which... Um, you know they're like bloodhounds. They 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 take pick up the scent from the individual's clothing or, or what have you, and they go and look for at this point a living body. Yeah, like and a short term search dog because they're right. on the actual scent. They're on a live scent. And then there's the cadaver dogs. Correct. These are strictly dogs that are used to find corpses. You know, it's after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, it's my understanding that they used both, and I know that they used both the second time because. By then, seven months later, you if you expected to find anything, you expected to find a corpse. Uh, and some of those dogs, I think these dogs, or at least one of the two that we were that were, went with us, was trained in the multiple aspects, trained both as a scent dog and as a cadaver dog. And they were both German shepherds, and they were very, very enthusiastic about this. So, yeah, that's something I definitely there, wanted to ask you they about. They would have found it. And yeah, you were with the dogs, and they didn't hit on anything. No, they did find a couple of things, and I point—I do point these out in the book. 
um, a, a rubber boot, which was probably by a cranberry harvester or cranberry farmer, mm-hmm. but uh, it was in a condition where it wouldn't have been uh, worn by Barry Seldon and was not his size. Also, um, I think in uh, in one of the uh, yeah the camo uh, the camouflage pants were also found, and again the um, condition and size kind of indicated that they would not be up for Barry Seldon. In fact, from the description of what Barry Seldon wore, that he he wouldn't have been in camouflage pants that type of thing. But here's where it gets really interesting now, Garrett. This is where you got to pay attention. All right. <laughs> Because I, I, I hint at some of these things I don't, but the first, the first search, which really took part over nearly a week, the, the first group went out on Friday and then again on Saturday. The search and rescue squad, I, I think, got out the second or third day. They weren't part of the initial group. You know, they had, um, they had police, they had hunters, they had drones. I, they may have even had military for all I know it was it was combed pretty clearly and they concentrated on the area around where the truck was found correct yes with with no with no luck no conclusion so if you if you were somebody who got out to take a piss and fell if you were somebody who had a um, a diabetic seizure uh, you wouldn't have gone far from that truck you would have been found and and that, and he wasn't so the second search, the one in May, the one that I attended, was not, and I repeat, was not near the, where the truck was found. Really? By that point, seven months later, there had been new intelligence that apparently was obtained by the family through a psychic. And the psychic, although the information was poo-pooed by the police, apparently, the family took the psychic's information to heart. I make I make light of it in the story. I say some, one psychic mentioned that the um, you know that he Barry went off the grid. The uh, the hunter went off the grid to be with his second family in in Taos, New Mexico, or something like that. That that's a bit of a lark and a stretch. But um, I think there was a joke floating around that that's you know probably what the expectation from the psychic was was at the time. But in truth, the psychic said very clearly that the body was not near the truck. In fact, the psychic pinpointed an area that was about five miles northeast of where the truck was eventually found. And that, Garrett, that is where the second search, the search that I was part of, concentrated. We were off Stevenson Road in between Stevenson and I think it's called Slave Road just before Chatsworth Road. That's where the second search concentrated, five miles or so from where the truck was found. Because of this new information that was passed on to us through the psychic and through the family. Again, that is very interesting. Yes, very interesting that, you know, the psychic said the body is there and it's not near the truck. You know, it's it's in these coordinates, and that's what we went for. Again, we turned up nothing, but you have to remember, this is seven months later, seven months later. So anything could have happened in between. Yeah, definitely. Um, so so I think about this now, and I, I listen to what you, you guys have been 
saying and the interviews and i didn't know at the time that there was a rivalry or a competition you know among the hunters mm-hmm. i didn't know that there were multiple deer stands that this was just one of several that he he had permission to hunt at i didn't know about the two brothers from chatsworth or any of that stuff and i'm not saying that they're not true i just didn't know about them or i probably would have found a way to put them in the story but i will say this in, in now in hindsight of the seven, eight years, somebody, somebody went out of their way to make sure that it did not look like a crime scene. Yeah. When you, when you, when you see a truck parked away from its destination, when you see that it's unlocked and, and the, the wallet, the keys, the phone, the dog, the bait, everything is in there, that there's no signs of struggle, that there's no tracks, no footprints, no nothing. Somebody took an awful lot of trouble to make sure that it uh, that did not look like a crime scene. And thus, the cops didn't process it as a, as a crime scene. And so, case closed. But... But that suggests very, very strongly that he did not disappear where the truck was found. He was not there. The dogs would have found him, you know, if he had any one of those incidents, went out to take a leak, um, had a, um, a diabetic shock or, you know, just traveled around. They would have found him. He wouldn't have gotten far. He, he wasn't a spry young man and he wouldn't have gotten too far. And the fact that the, the one psychic said that, you know, he's not, his body's not anywhere near the truck, also suggests that he was not there at that scene. So here's the other part that I'm going to throw into the mix that's going to blow your mind. I'm ready, um, I'm ready I for it. To be- I happen to belong to um, a paranormal group that meets regularly, um, monthly in, in Hamilton here in, in the outskirts of Trenton, New Jersey. We're, we're now meeting monthly, and it used to be the Hamilton Library. Uh, post-pandemic, we're meeting down in Bordentown on um, Monday night. In fact, this coming Monday. So all are welcome. <laughs> all are welcome. Okay. But um, we have various members, um, and some of them are your typical UFOologists and your, the curious and... Um, some of them, though, are um, many of them are professionals. Many of them are skeptics. Many of them are scientists. Many of them are professionals. And one person in particular that I got to know fairly well is a psychic who has worked um, with numerous police departments, um, mostly in North Jersey, because he's originally from from Newark. And I don't think he would mind me mentioning his name. His name is Carl. K-A-R-L Petri, P-E-T-R-Y. And you can look him up on Google. He's there. He's got a book out of some really great psychic situations that he's been involved in and families that he's helped bring closure to, police departments that he's helped. He's also been involved in some very interesting time slips, and I find them, you know, really, really fascinating. But anyway, getting back to... um, and while I was writing this book, which was a couple of years later, I guess I wrote, I started writing on this book about 2016. I did go to one of our meetings and I, without giving Carl any heads up of, of any information, I presented him with a photograph out of a newspaper of Barry Zeldin. And I just put it in front of him and asked him if he could tell me 
where this person was. That's all I said. Could you tell me where this person is? When I tell you, Garrett, within probably 10 or 15 seconds, he looks up at me after looking at Barry Zeldin's picture and says, he's dead. He's been dead for a while. And I said, can you tell me where is he dead? And he, sa he says he's, he's in a ravine. He's down a ravine, down a slope, and he's, he hurt his leg. There's something wrong with his leg. It, it might be broken or a wound or something like that. Um, and I said, I said, well, how close is he to his truck? And he says, there's no truck there. And I said, I said, uh huh, no truck. He's down a ravine. So, you know, could could be a well, could be a sand pit, it could be just about anything. Um, and the fact that he, he wasn't near the truck was very telltale because that's what another self, uh, another psychic had said. And this was kind of affirmation. And so I said, well, can you tell me where he is? And he says, basically, at this point, he's all over the place. He's scattered. There's bones everywhere. Oh man, this is and that is what I will leave you with. <laughs> well, Dave, first of all, you're giving me a lot more than I expected anyway. I did not know you were involved in the search. I literally have goosebumps from the uh, psychic story. Now, the other psychic you mentioned, was that the one that was involved in the uh, in the second search? The There was a psychic involved in the second search to the extent that she, and it was a woman, was hired by the... Um, by the family, and she pit was the one who initially pitched the idea that the body was not near the truck. And that was the information, the intelligence that the search and rescue squad used to set up their base camp and do the search um, closer to Lake Oswego instead of to um, Warren Grove. Oh, man. Well... Beaver <laughs> Dam Road, right? And, and this thing was set up uh, northeast of that towards uh, it off of Stevenson Road, not even close. So Mike has a psychic friend also. He's part of another paranormal group. And that psychic has been telling him that he's nowhere near that truck and that the truck was yep. staged. So this is, yes. now we have, it sounds, you know, when we put all our stories together, we have three different psychics that probably don't know each other all saying the same thing. Yeah, Carl, when I approached him, he, he did not know the story. He did not know this guy. He's not from this area. And I didn't tell him anything other than, can you tell me where this guy is? That's it. And like I said, within 15 seconds, he just gave me the story I gave you. Wow. So that is affirmation that three different psychics have been asked to respond to questions related to him, but not specific about him, perhaps. And they've all affirmed that he was nowhere near that truck. So the conclusion to me is pretty clear. It was staged, and that suggests really strongly that it was foul play now who <laughs> and how uh, and where remain to be to be found and it probably won't be at this point because the police really have no stomach for it no interest in it no resources committed to it and the family unless there's some emotional closure that they're looking for or unless some other tip comes out of the woodwork you know an arm is found <laughs> um you know in a um in a cranberry bog or something with, that has a telltale ring on it that belonged to him or something like that, mm -hmm. we'll never know. Just going to be another one of those mysterious Pineland, Pine, Pine Barren disappearances. Yeah, Although this I mean, one has, has so many great elements for, for a terrific story that I could not help putting it into the, the book. And as I was listening to you and Mike interview the people over the last couple of weeks, 
I, I really wanted to do this as an investigative reporter type thing. But when I was barred from getting information from the police reports, uh, I had no choice but to make it entertaining and, and, and make it fictional. But uh, I did blur the lines. I did use the, the facts that I knew and um, put it in, a, in into a story that I think um, is both telltale. It, you know, it's, it, it rings with possibilities. Um, is made up is, is is fictional. Yeah, well, I th I think you did a great job. That's where you channeled your energy. Where if you couldn't do the investigative reporting, and you channeled that into you know doing what you do best, which is writing. Man, I so far just I'm like I said I'm not even finished reading it yet, and I've already you've already made me think outside the box on a couple different things. And one of the things that I've discovered, and I heard you and Mike talking about this, one of the things I discovered back at the time when I was researching the book and the story was about um, missing 411. Uh, and I did read, I did read um, uh, um, David's book on that and um, came across this is the only New Jersey disappearance story that appears in his book and that that made me wonder did he you know do it did he do it for the sales so it'd be all inclusive of as many states as he could find or was there something about this disappearance that uh, that rang true obviously the body hasn't been found so it wasn't barefooted and it wasn't near a lake and you know our body water which most of these things are mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it, it is like he's there one moment and gone the next yeah but i I feel like the missing four one one was of was so I don't know um, new to me and and so interesting that I had to find a way to work that into the book too you know uh, along with Armageddon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man the the four one one phenomena the missing four one one is is extremely interesting and again I think the case does hit some of the marks but it's not as uh it's not quite like the rest of them I think it's more of a normal missing story you know no less bizarre by any means it's a pretty wild case but it is very interesting that uh the police involvement i did want to talk about that we're actually we're waiting on some cooperation right now and mike has been well he's written a few emails he's interviewed a couple different cops um from different jurisdictions and it seems like I, it's very weird right now with the i guess social climate around police yes and uh yes. i think what I think what's happening is is they're not being uncooperative. I think they're just being very apprehensive and, you know, rightfully cautious, I think, because they probably think that, you know, we're going to, you know, we're just going to slam them on dropping the, the ball on this case. Yeah, which... yeah. They, they've got to be guarded. Um, they're human. You know, they, they make mistakes and, and they are emotional and they can jump to conclusions like anybody else. Um, and who knows, uh, in, in that situation, in, in that situation, everything... It seemed to be, you know, like a walk in the park. In this case, a walk in the woods. So why get all exercised about it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's going to come down to armchair detectives like us, like you and I and the public to just look into it. I know we got Mike out there putting posters up. We're constantly looking for people to talk to to get more leads. You, yeah. were, you were a treasure chest, man. <laughs> and... There you go, Garrett. That's what's so great about New Jersey. Here's another one of those Jersey stories that's got no resolution. It's just a deeper mystery. Yeah. In as, as far as you want to go. And that's what I'm saying. This speaking to Dave Pilates, I mean, he picked this one case from Jersey. There's so many he could have picked, you know? The state is definitely rich in folklore and unsolved mysteries. Though. We could go back to Jimmy Hoffa and still work on that one. Yeah, I'm sure that's an episode that's going to be coming. <laughs> 
I think we're doing Gary Grant next. I don't know if you tracked that at all. I haven't, but I'm going to be tuning in to uh, to you guys. Uh, you, you seem to be, you know, at the vanguard of some some stuff, or at least creating new um, new interest in some of these stories. And I don't know, maybe you've got a story you can pitch me, and I'll, and I'll follow along. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm. I know between me and Mike, we could definitely give you some uh, firsthand accounts. Well, his his ghost stories, the one the ones you were sharing recently. Um, they're pretty fascinating. It, it, that's a whole different genre for me, you know. But yeah. I'd love to go down that rabbit hole with you guys someday. <laughs> oh, man, we would love to have you on and talk about some, some different things, especially, uh, you know, not just this book, but, again, the whole Along the Jersey Shore series. That would be perfect to talk about. Me and Mike are both equally as skeptic as we are open-minded, so I think we're a happy balance, and we're just trying to build community here. And uh, I think that's really what a lot of podcasts aren't trying to do. But we're really just trying to solve this thing. And you got a good thing going, Garrett. You you know you guys have a passion, and th- that is a must. You have a passion for uh, for what you uh, are doing, believe in it, and lo and behold, look at you got all these listeners. You got all these people who have the the same passion, the same interest. They want to know that we need answers, and it's it's like you said, the climate. It's very difficult to trust any authority anymore. I, I'm I'm afraid that all the walls have been torn down. <laughs> so you gotta find the answers on your own. You nailed it, man. But uh, man, you just fit right in. We appreciate you being on the show, and we'll definitely be in contact in the future. I, I would love to talk to you more. Sounds great, Garrett. Stay warm up there. All right. <laughs> Have a good one. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you so much. So we'd like to thank Dave Hart for coming on the show. I uh, really appreciate that. Um, you interviewed Dave. What did you think? I, I thought it was a good interview, man. I mean, he obviously did his you know own footwork and research on the case, and you start having all these theories come up while you're trying to write, and I think that's a unique perspective that probably we don't have. Yeah, I, I thought it was. I thought it was an awesome interview. I, yeah, he's going to be valuable for some other subjects too. I, and I, th- I think I had told you I have one of his fiction books and didn't even realize it um, before yeah, we yeah, even yeah. talked on. And um, you know, I, I, I enjoyed his book. It was a, it was a really interesting read, and I thought his, you know, he brought new information in here with this, um, set, you know, this psychic, which I, I'm going to have to uh, talk a little bit with the family about. You know, yeah. So. You know, he told us in the interview is that that second search was based off of, you know, where the psychic was saying. And I don't know who that psychic was, but that's a different psychic altogether than the one he talked about later on in the interview. Right. And one that you use, your good friend, Marie. Yeah. So when it comes down to it, man, he got three psychics saying that, you know, the whole thing is staged. He, he wasn't there. I mean, that's got to be something, man. Yeah, I balanced that out with what would they say, though, right? I mean, like, they don't really have too much to say if they say, yeah, he got lost in the woods and, you know, passed away. I mean, we always have to balance that out, right? Yeah. I, I look for consistencies in their stories. I mean, you brought Marie up. You know, Marie, at the outset, was was basically, when she talked to me, was describing the scene when they recovered the vehicle. I mean, to the letter. You know, when I was talking to her, she's like, yeah. She's like, there's two guys there, and there's a cop there, you know, and and I'm like, I think you're locked in on the actual vehicle recovery, you know, and she did a little bit of, of thinking about that, 
And then, you know, she came up with uh, some information about a pond or a river or something along those lines. So that's kind of where she is now. And she's, she's trying to put, she's putting feelers out and seeing what she can find out, you know, but. I, yeah. You know, I can't speak for the other two psychics that Dave talked about, but I mean, like, I know that Marie's got a pretty good track record. Yeah, she does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, I struggle with bringing that into this right because we're 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 getting some traction just doing regular boots on the ground work right and we're getting somewhere now um we're starting to move the story forward you know every time i look at that area i i'm just amazed that (laughs) i'm just amazed at the physical proximity of how small that area is and how many main arteries there are all around that that are an easy walk to if you just keep going in one direction you know i think for people who aren't from new jersey if you're thinking like it's like a search in colorado it's not and if you're thinking it's the deep dark pine barrens it's not you know it's a very tricky area there's some really nasty underbrush but that just keeps you towards the trails and keeps you toward the main the main arteries right like you know so I, I can't stress enough, you know, for people who listen to the show, go take a physical look at the location where his car went missing. It's very easily available online. And then just kind of, you know, Google Earth out from there and see if what I'm saying isn't the truth. I, and every time I take a ride up there and I go through, and I go through there often because, you know, I'll just be up there and mm-hmm. I, I'll just want to take a ride through. It, it just keeps getting smaller and smaller. It's just baffling to me. It really is. And, you know, Tom Tom kind of said the same thing. You know, I mean, Tom, you know, you heard Tom's interview. Tom kind of said the same thing. And we've got an ongoing dialogue now with the police, finally. And we're, you know what I've been going through with that. We're going to do a show on it. But I am just amazed at how much I get by just asking people up there how much information comes out and that's all we want the police to do is just go up and interview the same people I'm interviewing and hear the stories I'm hearing. Yeah. So what we'll do in the next show is we'll talk, uh, you know, about the dialogue that we've got going on with law enforcement. Uh, we'll talk about the bowling ball story and we'll let everybody know what the bowling ball went, you know, meant. Um, it's an interesting story. I think people will find it interesting. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's, we've got to get caught up on this because, you know, it, it's, it's so typical, right? If I had to do long form journalism like this again, <laughs> I think what I would do is I would do the entire series and then publish it all at once because, you know, you'll go months without hearing anything and then exactly. you'll hear, you'll get a deluge of information in three weeks. And there's only two of us, it's you and me, and we can't get it all out at once. <laughs> so. Yeah, we'll talk about the uh, ongoing dialogue with the police. We'll talk about the ball and ball, and we'll talk about uh, some other interesting subjects in the next episode. Yeah.
story, the rap side, crack side, how I smoke, funk, smack, bitches on the backside. Bed style, the place where my head rests, 50 shot clip if a nigga want test. The rocket launcher, biggie stomp chair, high as a motherfucking helicopter. That's why I pack a Nina, fuck a misdemeanor, beating motherfuckers like Ike beat Tina. All I want is, 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 all I want is,